and welcome to a fresh and furious January edition of the Boarding Pass at The Athletic with Ken Weave and myself, Murad Atesh, in Winnipeg Jetsland right now. We have some fairly intense news via Matthew Perot receiving what some might call a bit of a cheap shot right to the chops, and for a player coming off of a concussion and experiencing that, he had some fiery words we'll get into. We've got Interesting quotes from Paul Maurice talking about marriage and coach firings and his good friend Pete DeBoer and Gerard Gallant as well. Um, this is Murata Tesh, joined by Ken Weeb as always this afternoon. Ken, how are you today? I'm excellent, sir. How about yourself? Hey, I'm doing well, though I will admit that I get fired up, and I've told you about this a couple of times. You've had to listen to it a couple of times. When I see headshots especially on players dealing with concussions as somebody who has dealt with them myself and the long-term ramifications of it, I get pretty peeved. Uh, So when it comes to Matthew Perot, we all saw the hit take place. He's straddling the blue line, making a check on Tyler Myers. Uh, The puck goes right by both players. Perot turns up ice. Jake Vertanen of the Vancouver Canucks leans into him body first and then last second pops an elbow or his shoulder right into Perot's jaw safe to say well before we get into Matthew Perot talking because he was fired up Ken um, I'm fired up about the hit I'll say flat out it's a bullshit play on a vulnerable player who's coming off of a concussion and I have no problem saying that what did you see in the moment and what have you thought since then yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I, I'm going to personally say, Murad, I like the fired up side of you. Let's see more of it. Uh, secondly, <laughs> <laughs> not not for the reasons of getting a concussion. I don't want your uh, I don't want your health to be in uh, in be to be vulnerable at all. But uh, yeah, no. I mean, at the time, I, I did notice. Uh, I, I was one of the few, I think, in the press box that saw the re- like. I looked at the replay while the play was going or afterward, and it just was. I'm like, oh, I think that was a cheap shot. And then they showed it again, and I was like, oh, yeah, he definitely stuck the elbow up. And, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, pro, I mean, the you can't even make the argument that the puck was close to I mean, the puck was close to him, yes, but he never actually made a play on it. And by the time uh, Vertanen does flick the elbow up, I mean, there was – it was absolutely avoidable and unnecessary. So uh, – and I also happened to be, you know, Scott Billick and I were the two people uh, that heard the heat – of the moment from Perot right afterwards and him, you know, just in utter disbelief in what happened and why would a guy do this? And I mean, when we asked what he said, I said, you're an idiot. You're going to get suspended. But lo and behold, he was, <laughs> Vertanen was not suspended and uh, and Perot was equally as fiery today as he was after the game and and rightfully so. Well, yeah, the what's wrong with him comments. And, you know, um, I, I walked up after that scrum was done. I think it was Hellebuck who was in there before. And you you and uh, Scott were talking to Perot. And I just had to ask the same question. Just I knew you guys would talk about it. And just the look on his face. The fuck is wrong with him, he said. And then he walked out. That was it. That was the interview. And that his, he's still maintaining that theory today. Because like you said, no supplemental discipline. And so Matthew Perot was asked about his reaction today. He didn't hold back. Yeah, I'm not surprised, to be honest. Uh, you know, player safety my ass. Like, this is literally a elbow to the face to a guy that didn't have the puck. I see him coming. I brace for a hit. It was a late hit. I never had the puck, and he flicks his elbow to my face, and they're, and they're not going to do anything about it. So 
Now I got to take matters in my own hand next time this happens and I get I get to swing my stick across his, his forehead and I shouldn't I shouldn't get suspended then. Like I can't really protect myself there if the league's not going to protect me then I'm the smallest guy on the ice so I can't really fight anybody so the, the only thing I can do to defend myself is is use my stick so the next guy that does that to me is going to get my fucking stick. And I better not get suspended for it. This isn't the first incident in recent weeks even where people were wondering why there wasn't a suspension. Cassian Chuck thing comes to mind as well. Is, is that an overall concern as a player that there's some inconsistency there? Yeah, for sure. Especially after that hit that I just, I just suffered. They're not going to do anything about it. I mean, that's clear-cut elbow to the face to a guy that didn't have the puck. Like, he's just taking on a smaller guy. Like, if I was a bigger guy, he probably doesn't do that because you know I can beat him up. One more on uh, Blake actually engaged yeah. with Rattan and, and tried to, he didn't want to go. What does that say, yeah. I guess, about yeah, him? Yeah, exactly. Like, he's not even going to fight anybody, so he's going to throw his elbow around. He doesn't have to fight anybody, and the league's not going to do anything about it. So maybe now I should start running around with my elbows up and getting the guys in the face, and then I don't have to answer and fight anybody, and I should be, I should be all right, right? And there is the rub of all of this. Matthew Perot is talking about now swinging his stick, now retaliation, instigating some sort of extra level of violence. And when I hear that, I don't necessarily believe that Perot is going to do what he says literally, but in the wake of Zach Cassian and essentially threatening Matthew Kachuk and um, in advance of a game that they're going to play, Ken, I, I got to be honest, I, there's a part of me that feels like NHL player safety is failing us, uh, us, us as the sport collectively, I don't really know if I get to claim that, but failing its players, its number one stakeholder um, in real time right now, I worry about where this goes from here. First and foremost, if you look up CTE, depression, all the sorts of things that are long-term permanent damage to the brain, multiple repeated concussions show up on all of the worry lists, all of the factors, especially within certain time windows. So Perot is uniquely vulnerable and uh, uniquely fortunate, I believe, to get out of it without something permanent or a new concussion. The fact that he's able to recall the event and talk through it is, is, is great news for him personally. But I wonder what the next step of all of this is. Because he's talking about beating people up, not being able to beat people up, swinging his stick. Um, <laughs> and then you got the situation between Edmonton and Calgary. And I just, Ken, am, am I losing context on this? Because I, I, I think that this just escalates to a place where, you know, some something's going to get done that people can't talk their way back from. Right. I, I mean, I think that the, the, the easiest way to prevent what happened from happening would be for there to be a deterrent. I mean, Matthew Perot's point is there should be a deterrent to Jake Vertanen casually skating towards him and elbowing him in the chin when he doesn't have the puck. I mean, I don't know how the conversation went. We know that all these plays get reviewed. I don't know if Jake Vertanen actually spoke with someone in player safety, if he got a warning, if his GM got a warning. I mean, we don't have that information. And I mean, a lot of people on Twitter were wondering, I mean, this would be a prime example. I mean, we know that they do, you know, pretty tidy videos to explain when suspensions are handed down. This is a great example of maybe laying out the rationale as to why a, neither a fine or a suspension was levied in this situation. Then then you can answer a bunch of questions without having to speculate what was going through everyone's mind. I mean, I don't, you know, is it one game? Is it a fine? I, I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's a little bit above my pay grade, but I, I feel that 
by at least handing down one of those two things, you are making it a deterrent for Jake Vertanen to have said behavior happen again. And on the flip side, when you don't have a deterrent that is handed out, then it's natural for Matthew Perot to think vigilante justice is his only answer. Because if people are going to be coming at him, his only defense is to get his stick up. Is 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 the you know is was his answer today? I mean, uh, like the utter disbelief from Perot. Like, what is wrong with this guy? Why would you do that? All those questions were valid. I mean, there was no reason for that play to have happened. I mean, are there more brutal things that happen? Yes, but. When you're a guy like Perot who had a, a concussion a month ago on a play where he was blind, you know, basically in a vulnerable position and blindsided, I mean, of course you understand why he's fleek, freaking out. I mean, I would be doing the same thing if I were him. And I mean, that 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 sort of leaves us in, in a strange place. I mean, I mean, I do think the Department of Player Safety wants to look out for his players, but I mean, I guess the lens there's always two sides to everything but I mean in this case I think it's a, you know I think it's a miss I mean I think it's it would have been easy to hand out some form of punishment and then the situation is over yes Matthew Perot knows that Jake Vertanen you know that he'll play against him in March and Perot will not go after Vertanen because he's not a fighter but you know if someone can hit Jake Vertanen cleanly or if someone chooses to drop the gloves with him in that game in March then fine but you don't want a scenario where guys are headhunting on Jake Vertanen now for the next five or six meetings I mean that that doesn't solve the problem either no it absolutely doesn't because there the, the eye for an eye sort of situation where one hit is avenged by another which is avenged by another I mean that that's so far away from hockey the interesting thing is though as much as I'd like to believe that these things don't uh, don't happen that the vigilante justice is sort of an out of the game thing it's an 80s thing and all of that sort of stuff I mean uh, you, you did have Blake Wheeler have a few words with Jake Vertanen and if you read um, the latest at the Athletic Edmonton Zach Cassian mentions that uh, he got 20 upwards of 20 text messages the next day with his altercation with Matthew Kachuk sort of encouraging him uh, to, to make sure that he gets his piece of the guy and I know that he's that Kachuk is maybe a more controversial player than Jake Vertanen would be league-wide. But this is an undercurrent for sure that when players feel their safety is at risk, I mean, that's when the anger comes out. And I, for me personally, I worry that at some point we're going to see something. I don't know that I have to invoke the Todd Bertuzzi-Steve Moore situation, but that's the worst-case scenario of it. And that does happen, and that does change lives. There's one thing you said, and I'll take this as the opportunity, that there's two sides to everything. And just by, by virtue of the fact that you know they're going to be discussing the, the play as well, the van cast with Jeff Patterson and Thomas Drance, make sure you tune into that this week. I have no idea what the Vancouver perspective of this is. I mean, sometimes we get siloed and, you know, we, you and I can, we deal with Matthew Pro day to day. There's some affinity. You, you think about the guy's health. Maybe there's a different perspective in Vancouver. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I really don't know, but you got to check out the VanCast to know what the what the thoughts are over in that direction. One thing on that Palmer, front, Marat, sorry to interrupt pardon, before yeah, we ahead. switch gears. Uh, I mean, basically, based on my Twitter feed, uh, one of the subjects that uh, has been prevalent is the Canucks are retaliating with, uh, what about when Perot took out the knees of Yannick Hansen in 2016? I mean, uh, I mean, Matthew Perot plays the game hard. I'm sure, I mean, that hit was more accidental to me but it's the lens of the fan base is always so much different I mean uh, I think of the the game I'm gonna you know this is totally unrelated but the game in Minnesota 
um, when Tucker Pullman had that crazy back check and he like did the reach around and lifted the stick on, I think, Kevin Fiala. It was funny. I mean, for me, I, I understand why a penalty was called because he did catch the hands and in real time it looked obvious. But for me, it looked like a back check. And for the for the radio guy for the wild, he thought it should have been a penalty shot. So I mean, I understand how the different lens you view things through a different lens. I mean, but I mean, in that situation, that even the fans are citing. I mean, Perot is going for a hit, and Hansen moves at the last minute, and Perot's knee catches his knee. It's not like he blatantly stuck his knee out. And besides the fact, I mean, you know, when you're going beelining at someone and you change direction and try to change your path is way different than when you're skating casually towards a guy and you stick your elbow up. So again, it's not an eye-for-an-eye situation. Matthew Pearl's not a dirty player. He plays the game hard. But in that situation, there's no way that he was trying to hurt Hansen. But there's no other way of explaining. Vertanen was trying to hurt Perot. That's why he elbowed him. I mean, if you wanted to hit him with a shoulder, fine. But it, it was a sneaky, dirty play. It's one that you hope goes under the radar. And, and that's that's why Paul Maurice talked about Blake Wheeler's actions and players that's when players go to self-policing when something like that isn't called on the ice because the men in stripes didn't see it now players feel like they have to take matters into their own hands and and that's when things escalate which is what we've all been talking about all week with uh, you know Kachuk and Cassian and they're providing incredible audio clips for us and but you got to be careful on both sides of the line and then now you're talking well Oh, Cassian doesn't, he's not going to fight Kachuk. Now he has to fight Lucic or Ronaldo. I mean, it's just a massive can of worms and you just have to be extremely careful because a lot of players are being put at risk then in this situation. It's not just one singular player or the two players in question. Now, you know, injuries happen in a lot of varieties. And I mean, there's a fine line between protectionism and, and doing, you know, what's better for the game. I mean, eye for an eye, that it's, just not like that anymore I mean yes there's going to be some level of retribution and you understand definitely why Blake Wheeler I, I was said on TV the other day I mean the action of just telling Vertan and that that's not acceptable is as important as dropping your gloves and potentially breaking your hand on a guy's helmet I mean the action of standing up for the teammate doesn't necessarily mean you have to pound the guy's skull in but sometimes that's what it takes does that have an impact, though? Because I think if you ask Jake Vertanen in a non-game situation, I've never spoken to the guy, I, I have no idea, but I assume that there's a reasonability there when the emotions are in check during, you know, day-to-day, 9-to-5 outside of game action where, you know, if you asked him, hey, uh, would it be a good idea to elbow a player in the jaw that is, like, not near the puck? Um I'm sure that he'd recognize the impact or, or the, the importance of not doing such a thing. Um, yeah. In the heat of the moment, though, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that sort of logic and thinking goes right out. There's an opportunity and a decision that happens in a split second that's not nearly as rational as what a guy's day-to-day would be. Can, can words, I don't know, can you, it's a compelling point that to be told right away is important. I, I wonder if that changes. And I, of course... Vertanen's a heavy hitter. He throws a lot of hits. I don't know that he's got a track record of being... Uh, I'm not perfectly familiar with his track record of uh, of how dangerous or reckless these sorts of decisions are. Paul Maurice, and I'm using the word decision because Paul Maurice believed it was a decision as well, and I sort of reflect on it. You watch the clip. It looks like there's a moment where he sort of decides to pop a little bit more arm and elbow into the play just to make sure that he gets his piece. 
Um, I'll leave it there before I start throwing more of those words we can't say on radio but can <laughs> say here. With Paul Maurice as well, though, he gave us kind of a good one today. So I guess, man, the coaching carousel in the NHL. We got seven NHL head coaches fired this season for a number of reasons. Uh, um, Gerard Gallant being the latest one, and then, of course, replaced by Maurice's good friend Pete DeBoer in, in Vegas. And... Ken, I don't, I don't know what your reaction is, but mine when I see that, I'm like, gosh, those, uh, those underlying numbers in Vegas are strong. They're, um, you know, a top three team in terms of five on five flow of play sort of metrics. Their power play is good. Their penalty kills mid pack, and they're getting something like a 906 from Mark Andre Fleury, which Jets fans wish would have happened during the playoffs a couple seasons back. But it's been a low percentages year for Vegas, and I wonder to myself, you know, is is that all? that happened did did gerard gallant especially like essentially get sewered by pdo by percentages by shooting and save percentage or was there some sort of systemic reason was it pete DeBoer's available i i don't know what to make of that the big question around the nhl i think yesterday and today is why so and why do you think yeah you bet marat i mean for me this is it's twofold so a and probably most important of all um would be expectation. I mean, we went into the year, and, and we'll use the Jets as an example. I mean, people wonder, you know, one of the immediate reactions yesterday was, well, if the Golden Knights are going to do this after being in the Cup Final two years ago, why haven't the Jets done anything with Maurice? Well, for me, it's an apples and oranges situation because going into this year, the Vegas Golden Knights were among the front runners and favorites to be bona fide Stanley Cup contenders. They were my pick not only to win the West, but to win the Stanley Cup. And I, they were one of the more popular picks in our athletic writers' poll. So I don't think it's an accident when a team is has had a bunch of uneven stretches. Uh, yes, there's been there have been lots of good with Vegas, and uh, they've been able to, you know, they have enough talent and enough depth that they can outscore teams and on occasion. But uh, the other part of that is after Tuesday night's game, the Jets leapfrogged Vegas. Vegas has been or still even in an you know, inconsistent year, was hanging around the top of the Pacific, and they remain close. But they're below the playoff line. And if you're a Stanley Cup contender and you're below the playoff line, you don't have to be 31st like the St. Louis Blues were in order to decide that you need a fresh voice. So for me, that's that's first and foremost. Uh, Vegas expected to be in a different position, and they were not there, and they felt a fresh voice was needed. Secondly, I mean, I know Kelly McCrimmon is a patient individual. I mean, I've known him from his Brandon Wheat Kings days, and I actually attended one of their camps when he was the general manager. So, I mean, I know Kelly a little bit. I did not speak with him about this decision. But for me, the only way that you fire a guy who is considered to be a very good hockey man and a guy that obviously Kelly McCrimmon has a ton of respect for in terms of what he was able to do with that expansion franchise is if there is some disconnect between A, the players and the coaching staff, or B, the coaching staff, and management in terms of style of play. Um, I don't know if it's as simple as saying their defensive style of play because obviously their offense is generated enough at 5-on-5 and on special teams. So I have to believe it is something along those lines because you don't fire a guy who took a team to the Stanley Cup in its first season of existence unless you have a good reason. This is not something where Kelly woke up and said, 
I'm done with this. Like, it, he didn't decide this overnight. I mean, this is something that I think he would have had to agonize over, but back to your point about availability, I mean, the Golden Knights and Sharks know each other very well, and there is a genuine hatred between the organizations based on those playoff series and high-intense matchups that they've had. I mean, they got one of the best best beefs in the NHL between Ryan Reeves and former Jet Evander Kane. I mean, their back and forth is, uh, you know, quite cla- when We're talking about great clips. I mean, is legendary. But Kelly McCrimmon and his management group would also know and respect the type of coach that Pete DeBoer is as well. Maybe they prefer a system that he would employ. I know looking at your tweets yesterday, how can a new guy come in and keep the good, but try to eliminate the other part that they're trying to clean up? I mean, and that'll be the biggest challenge for both DeBoer and the Golden Knights players as they move forward. So, uh, I mean, I certainly understand why people are up in arms and, and are surprised. And I mean, I'm surprised as well, but I'm not as surprised as those who put themselves in the shocked category just because a, it's been a little bit of an uneven season for the Golden Knights, and B, you know there has to be a reason in order for this type of action to be taken. Well, um, certainly there must be, and that was a decisive decision on the part of uh, of the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, Paul Maurice would have a unique insight to this, not only because Pete DeBoer is a friend of his, but because he's been hired and fired before. He knows what that feels like and what... Uh, it can do to a to a person and and, and the situation in, in in their career and their outlook. Um, so in and amongst all of our speculation, why why would this happen? Um, and you know what's next in the NHL today? Paul Maurice was asked, well, uh, what he thought about the situation, and he had a good one for us. Yeah, the only thing I the last week qualify is as none of us know. We don't know the relationship with the players. Don't know what's going on in the room. Nobody knows. So for me to comment on it in in some ways you know like when pete got fired um you know i'm, I'm not sad for him because i know he's i didn't know it was gonna be 30 days i thought he was gonna enjoy the entire month of january um but he's gonna be okay and he's coached a long time in the nhl so there's not the same kind of concern that it's your first job and you got a young family he's been around for a while so i you know and then gerard the same thing it's it is a very painful experience it's a very personal yet very public experience right it's it's i think that i think in truth this is the best analogy you, you, you're you're in a marriage you love the woman but it's getting a little bit rocky and then you come home one day and she says uh, paul we're going in a different direction and there's going to be a press conference in three hours where we're talking about how great the new husband's going to be so it's tough right you put your heart and soul into it and then you're out but Shard's a good-looking man. He'll be all right. And it does seem like each and every step of the way... I'm still laughing at that line. That was a great line. But each and every step of the way, these guys so often get rehired. Of the seven guys that were fired so far, you've got two that are re-employed, like Paul Marie says, with before the end of the next month, uh, in, in DeBoer's case. Uh, Maurice himself has already been the source of speculation and actually maybe before I throw get into that and and, and the piece that you wrote on it and, and, and a little bit more of that 
Ken, I mean, I, I know I laughed at the line. Well, anything to say before we move on? And, and, and I want to talk about Maurice's status in Winnipeg as well. Sure. I mean, the gallows humor, I mean, yes, it is funny, but I mean, you have to have gone through that situation like Paul has in order to understand why that analogy is so important. I mean, when you're working, I mean, you think of Jesse Granger. I mean, yesterday, you know, for the last two or three years, Jesse has been working side by side with Gerard. Uh, all of a sudden, an email shows up in the inbox that says, by the way, Gerard is fired. Pete DeBoer has been hired. And now Gerard will, you know, pick up the pieces and, you know, we expect him to be hired, you know, the, as soon as, almost as soon as he had been fired. It was very similar to last time with when, when he was relieved of his duties by Florida. Where's he going to end up next? I mean, the, the, it went from, you know, in the 24-hour news cycle that we're in and the, the short attention span window, it went to, George could be hired. Oh, he's got a relationship with Iserman here. What about Seattle? Uh, you know, how about here? And every team that's sort of scuffling at all, including some Jets fans. My phone is was, you know, the text messages were flowing in on occasion. Oh, what about Maurice for Winnipeg? Or, I mean, it's just a, it's a, just a strange scenario where, uh, I mean, it just, it is so personal, but it's so public. And I mean, you hear all the time about, uh, you know, the outgoing coach leaving a message for the incoming coach, or, you know, sometimes they're friends and, you know, sometimes they're on the same staff and, it just, it, it could be such a, it's a strange business because you'd think for us on the outside, you'd think it would be incredibly uncomfortable, but the coaches that are going through it, and especially a coach like Maurice who has that experience and now has that 20 years in the league, he can understand it a lot better than the first time head coach that gets fired. And now you're thinking you're a rock bottom and man, when am I going to get a chance to be a head coach again? I mean, People make fun of the recycling nature of coaches, but a lot of it is perspective. I mean, you think about having to go through something where you're at the very top of your profession. You have one of 31 jobs. And one day someone tells you you're not good enough for that job anymore. So how a person handles their firing, what they do during their time off, whether it's a month off, a year off, or three years off, it really can do a lot to determine what they do in terms of setting themselves up for that next job. What can you learn from from your shortcomings, for lack of a better term? Uh, I mean, how could you? How would you have approached things differently? But you also have to have a cooling off period where you sort of step out of your bubble, because when you're in that bubble, like what Maurice was talking about, you wear the losses so hard. And I mean, how you can find the balance between you know just going game to game or trying to build. I mean, it's a, it's an eight month season, but the good teams want to play for 10 months, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's so much to process and go through. And uh, I mean, and then try to have to hit the reset button and man, I mean, even talk about, I mean, the situation, it makes me think about when Dallas Aikens was in Edmonton and you hear about the grief his kids are taking at school. I mean, we don't see the real life impact of whether it's social media or talk radio or podcasts or, or any of that stuff. I mean, it's an incredibly, you know, great job to have, but it's also incredibly high stress and can cause a lot of real anxiety. I'm sure it can cause a lot of anxiety for people in the profession throughout. I mean, it's a lot of time it could be, if you let it, 
it could be like a player. I mean, if you're constantly looking over your shoulder about who's who's coming for your job, you're not going to perform at the necessary levels. So, I mean, becoming comfortable in your own skin, dealing with criticism, handling day-to-day, I mean, juggling of personalities within a team. I mean, there are there's so much to deal with uh, in a head coaching capacity that stretches well beyond X's and O's or how the power play and penalty kill are performing. Uh, I mean, you're managing a lot of not just players, but you're managing egos, you're managing a, a whole bunch of things in terms of, you know, your vision and selling, you know, again, we laughed about the Jack Rosovic line. Uh, I don't know that it was that type of transaction where how do you sell this to a player? Well, it's not a buy and sell situation all the time. The, the You have to trust that the player believes in the reason why you're making the decision. In that case, uh quote-unquote, demotion to the third line so that he could take some pressure off of a player who had only scored one time in 19 games. So, uh, I mean, like I said, it was a great clip and it was, you know, a a humorous moment, but there was a whole lot of truth uh, mixed into the humorous statement today. And, I mean, man, that would be just an incredibly tough thing to deal with uh, on the coaching front, uh, whether you're coaching at a a youth level or at the professional level. Well, it really does strike me as a, you know, something akin to, to getting on that treadmill, taking your warm up all of a sudden, okay, you're going to press the buttons, you're going to go to top speed, you're going to stay at top speed, you're going to top speed, and then they slam the brakes, they turn it right off, there's no cool down whatsoever, you're going from 60 to zero instead of the other way around all at one time. Um, and, and I just I can't imagine what that particular part of the game is like to deal with. Ken, one thing I like about your answer to that is, the whole thing is rooted in the fact that these guys are human beings first and foremost. And I think that uh, one of the things that can get lost sight of in all of this and, you know, sometimes, you know, I was going to accuse, I was going to invoke analytics and things like that into that. But I, I just think in, in the general obs- observation cycle of, of hockey as it is, um, the fact that they're people dealing with people things all of the way through is is a perspective to really never lose sight of. Um, and just got to say, I, I, I dug that. I think we're going to need more than a couple of minutes to talk about Paul Maurice's coaching future, how all of this situation might or might not apply to him. I think there's some unique, I don't want to say parallels, but opposites with Vegas. If you just, if you pull the human stuff out and look at some of the percentages and the numbers, I'll get into that in a second. For now, we should talk... Well, I'll throw the details out that we've got news. Carl Dahlstrom is out at least six weeks with a broken bone in his hand. Tucker Pullman was also moved to the IR today. The last, though, I think that Paul Marie said about him was that he might play by the end of next week's road trip. We've got Kulikov healed from the flu back in the lineup. Uh, and a top four Sami Niku lining up with, uh, with Neil Pionk as of today, as of this afternoon as well. Man, if coaches are a carousel, uh, the Winnipeg Jets defense is the entire carnival, I would say, in terms of just how much they have to deal with. Um, right before we close this off, and we'll save the Maurice stuff for the, uh, the, the back half, the, the, the bonus content, the subscribers-only sort of stuff. Um, in a word, what can we say about this defense? I mean... They've gone through so much. Dmitry Kulikov from the third pairing a year ago. Now he's going to be on the top pairing with Josh Morrissey. Sammy Niku, AHL for a long time. Now he's going to be on a top four role with Neil Pionk. Potato Spiza always fighting for their jobs and the hustle and all of that sort of stuff. Um, the fact that these guys are in the fight continues to be remarkable, whether you want to give them all the credit, the goaltending all the credit, the, some combination of it. I... I 
I can't get enough of watching just to see what happens. The amount of times these guys have had to finish with five men on, on the ice or five men, pardon me, on the roster by the end of the day. I, 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 lose, con- I, I lose words with what they have to, to <laughs> deal with. And so maybe in a word right before we close this off here, uh, you know, whether it's Kulikov up top or Niku, what, what, do you, what do you see for this defense going forward as they continue to fight for this wild card spot? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what a battle for sure. And I mean, I think that, you know, you touched on most of the things, but I, I personally think that Josh Morrissey's played two of his best games of the year in the last uh, last couple here. I think he really flourished with that 5D the other, the other day in the afternoon game. Uh, playing 25 minutes, he seemed to be in more of a rhythm. I think he's starting to get back to the Josh Morrissey that we expected to see this year, and we're seeing it a little bit more regularly. Tough break for Dahlstrom. Obviously, I thought that was one of his better games the other day, playing with a lot more assertiveness, uh, moving the puck, using his feet, uh, defending well. Uh, now he goes back to ground zero, and uh, Pullman, I, I think that he'll pro- the Jets will probably wait until after the break. Uh, just given his injury history, unless he's 100%, then maybe they try him. Uh, I would expect that Cameron Schilling would be a good candidate to come up. Uh, I know that they're a little bit shy on right shot D for uh, maybe an insurance policy for that road trip, but I would expect it's going to be Schilling. Uh, Kulikov going to the top pairing. I mean, he's played very well since he's been back. Uh, I like the fact that they're going to to try to lean on Niku a little bit more. We saw a glimpse of that vision and passing ability on the goal from Kyle Connor on the first goal on Tuesday. That that's the way that he needs to play. Make those offensive things happen. I thought uh, even though his ice time was was higher on the Sunday, obviously because of 5D, I thought uh, he was more involved uh, in the game on Tuesday against Vancouver, and and that's the way he needs to play. And I still think there will come a time when we see a little bit more of Pionk and Morrissey, but for right now they're going to continue to go with the old uh, divide-and-conquer mentality. And, uh, I mean, we'll see how it shakes down. I mean, on the other side, Lucas Spiza, I think, has played some of his better hockey when he was on that third pairing on the offside with Anthony Boteto. So let's see how he handles the job. And, and we'll, <laughs> I mean, again, I, I, on, my, on my season preview, I thought the defense would be better than we expected. I mean, it hasn't always been that way, but uh, given what they've had to endure, um, I mean, I think they've done, uh, you know, let's say a decent job, and they probably get a few bonus points and extra credit for what they've had to go through, even though the underlying numbers uh, still need uh, a lot of improvement. Well, satisfaction is expectations versus reality, so I, I think that, that both of those have to be taken into account with the defense. We started this show with talks of hits of or hits that could lead to fights, and we're ending, I guess, this portion with talking about the defense staying in the fight. Um, we're going to get into Maurice right away. For the moment, this is the first half of the boarding pass. Make sure that you're subscribing on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you rate and subscribe on both fronts. And if you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash theboardingpass you'll get 40% off your subscription to The Athletic plus you get to hear the extended version of The Boarding Pass each week here at theathletic.com for Ken Weeb, I'm Murata Tesh thank you for listening